Welcome to episode 243 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I pulled up to the restaurant and parked my car. As I got out, I nearly stepped on a wallet sitting on the ground just outside my driver's door. This was about 10 years ago and not the only time I found a wallet, but a memorable one. Immediately, I looked through the wallet to try and find a way to contact the owner. There was a driver's license, a few receipts for local restaurants, an ATM card, and a couple of credit cards. No easy way to contact the owner though, and it was Saturday night, so I couldn't drop the wallet off at her bank, something I've done when I found other wallets. I had recently moved out of the area and was only there for a couple of hours before driving back to my new neighborhood 30 minutes away. I definitely didn't want to make the owner travel all the way to meet me if it took a few hours for me to find her. I thought about leaving the wallet at the restaurant, but they didn't open until 4 p.m. on Sundays, and I didn't know how long it would take to track down the owner. I wondered, what stores were open right now that would be open early in the morning? Ah, the cupcake shop. They were about to close at 8 p.m. and opened up again at 7 a.m. I ran over to the cupcake shop and got there just as they were about to lock the door. Fortunately, they let me explain and said they'd be willing to put the wallet in their safe. With the wallet secured, I did another search online for the owner and posted on Facebook in case someone I knew knew her. Within 20 minutes of posting on Facebook, one of my friends figured out who the owner was and found her phone number. Within 30 minutes, I was on the phone with the wallet's owner explaining to her that her wallet was safe at the cupcake shop. With a sigh of relief, the owner said she hadn't even realized yet the wallet was missing, and she was getting on a plane at 11 a.m. the next day. She was able to pick up her wallet and a cupcake Sunday morning before heading to the airport. Your challenge this week. The lesson I learned from this incident was how helpful it is to have my cell number in my wallet and have my wife's cell number on my cell phone. I've suggested as much to others only to have them tell me, they don't think anyone would take the time to return their lost item. Maybe I went a bit above and beyond, but don't you think you'd call someone to let them know you found their lost item? Then why not make that easier for someone else to do by putting your contact info on things you might leave behind? My wife did this with her Mac dongle and even umbrellas, and she's had both items returned. Try this and let me know how it goes. I have a question before we dive into this week's interview. Are you wondering how you can apply this week's lesson in your business? Do you have your contact information in your LinkedIn about section? If you want to have people reach out to hire you, make it easier for them to do so. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest helps entrepreneurs tell economic stories that make dollars and cents. After nearly a decade in investment banking and having worked with Goldman, Lehman and CSFB on over $5 billion of transactions. She rode the high tech startup roller coaster in Europe, complete with angels, venture capitalists, and the coveted exit to a publicly traded company. She then founded Financeability, which upends traditional capital raising methods by providing entrepreneurs with the knowledge, tools, and self awareness to find the right kind of funding for their business. 
She's educated and mentored hundreds of entrepreneurs across three continents and has helped her clients raise over $30 million in early stage capital. She is the host of What's Your Ask podcast, which talks to investors and entrepreneurs about the different ways they've asked and been asked for money, references, introductions, and more. She's also the author of Funding Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. Please join me in welcoming Stephanie Sims. Hey, Robbie. It's great to be here. Awesome to have you here, Stephanie. Thanks for joining us from your home office in Scottsdale, Arizona. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership because as you'd probably agree, no one achieves success in a vacuum. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So that's a great question. I think being a leader is equal parts inspiration and risk slash action taking. So I think you have to have a bold vision that you can share with people that gets them excited about doing something, but then you also have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and take some of those risks and dig into doing the work yourself in order to keep those people inspired and keep them working with you. Right. It's not enough to just think really amazing thoughts. <laughs> exactly. Or, or say really cool things and then say, yeah. gee, someone else should figure this out. Yeah. That's, that wouldn't really be much of a leader, would it? It's like the person in the corner who has good ideas, but doesn't take the action. And you're like, yeah, but no one's going to follow you. So that's, I love it. Um, when did you start to realize you had some of those skills that people were going to, you know, not just hear your good ideas, but you'll be helping put them into action. So it's, it's funny. Cause I was thinking about this when you mentioned that we were talking about leadership in the context of, you know, my story. Um, and a couple of things come to mind when I was a senior in high school, God, so, so long ago, I decided that I was going to have a school-wide lock-in. It was called Project Graduation. And so we decided that instead of letting the seniors all go out and get crazy and perhaps drink and do things they shouldn't be doing and drive, uh, we were going to have them all come to the school. And at first it was like, there's no way I can make this happen. Like, what am I talking about? I've got a senior class of, you know, 800 people or whatever. I got to get the permission of the school. Like, who's going to ever do this? And it was so funny because as I started to talk to people, they got excited about the idea. And I realized, okay, there's legs here. And if I'm willing to put in the work and I'm willing to take the risk of going and asking the school and perhaps getting rejected, um, asking people to sponsor, because obviously we needed sponsors, um, this could really be something cool. And we pulled it off. We were able to do it. What a neat idea. Did you have a sense that the problem, like, did you were you aware of it as a problem, like seniors go out and get a little, you know, a little too much excitement that last day and then problems happen? Like, were, like was there an, an incident that happened in your life that made you think we got to have a resolution here, a different way of approaching this? Yeah. So part of what did happen, unfortunately, is, and I don't, I don't think it was my senior year. It may have been the year before, but there was a car accident where actually some people who had gone to my school had been killed um, because they were out drinking and driving. And it um, really struck me how one bad decision can have such a huge impact. And I kept thinking there's got to be a better way for us to all celebrate. Uh, and and I had heard, I think, about other people who'd done something, you know, at this point, kind of drinking and driving. Um, I'm an 80s child. I graduated from high school in the 80s. And so this was kind of coming to the forefront also of the social discussion, right? Like drinking and driving is not okay. Uh, that was around the time that Matt had been founded. Uh, and so it was kind of a, a really interesting uh, concurrence of events that, that brought me to that moment. 
you know, I graduated high school in 92. So I'm like right on the heels of that discussion. And um, I remember like I had a moment where I helped create a recycling project for my district. We were recycling polystyrene at the time. It was back then. And, and it still is an awesome thing to recycle, but we never kind of fully invested in it, I think, and stepped away instead to do other things. But yeah, I hear you. Like the idea of like knocking on the um, decision maker's door. Well, first figuring out who the decision makers even are, then knocking on their door. And then were they also, you know, I, part of, I think, why it worked for me was they were so kind of wowed by the fact that a student had this idea and was willing to put themselves forward that they bent over backwards to try to get me to have conversations with the right people in the room. And then when those conversations took place, it was a way above my head and I just sat there and let them talk. <laughs> so, But like people, people who would never have gotten in the room together got in the room. So I imagine similarly, they were like, whoa, Stephanie, that's an awesome idea. And if they'd had it themselves, they would have been like, no one will do this. This would be really silly. Kids aren't going to go along with it. Tell, tell me, like, how did people respond when you approached them? Well, it's been a while, so, so I'm digging deep into the recesses of my memory. But um, I had, like, I'd been part of student government, and so I had, at least I knew who kind of the people in the administration were. And I think I actually talked to my friends first because I was kind of in the same boat, right? Like, okay, great. I'm not going to go talk to the assistant principal if none of my friends are going to even think this is cool. Uh, and so I, I had um, talked to my friends and kind of gotten a sense that, yes, people would do this, but it had, you know, everybody was telling me, well, we have to have the gym open, right? So the, the sporty kids were like, well, I'll come, but only if we can play basketball all night, right? Or, you know, other people were like, I'll come, but as long as there's good food or pizza, and so I'd kind of gathered all the requirements together and then I was able to present it to the administration and and tried to to make it as easy as possible, saying to them, hey, look, I'll do the legwork. I'll go find some sponsors. We'll get the food donated. Really, all we're asking you for is the ability to use the facility. And so it was kind of about how do I make it as easy as possible for them to say yes. All right. So in your answer, you gave away part of part of what was your success, which is that you already were doing leadership things in the school. So let's let's dive a little deeper. I'm now I'm like, who were you in the playground? Like, who were you like, you know, were you were you always organizing people like were you the, always like the team captain running for office, like telling people, here's the game we're going to play today? Um, maybe <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it until now. Um. Yeah, I mean, I was I was kind of the person who didn't mind standing up and saying, I don't know what I don't know what you meant, like raising my hand in class and saying, can you can you say that again? I didn't really understand or on the playground saying, hey, you know what, there's let's go talk to this new person or let's go swing or whatever. And and yeah, as I got to junior high and high school, it's true, I did get like involved in student government. Um, I was also on the debate team, which anyone who knows me knows I love to talk, so they will not be surprised by that. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was it was this history of kind of getting involved and seeing what the opportunities were. For me, it was always like wanting to learn something, right? Like if I go talk to this person who I don't know, I'm totally new and find an amazing opportunity that I'd never had before. So was there someone in your life that saw that and really nurtured and supported you and being the person who sort of showed up in the front of the room and like, or did you see other people in your life do that, like take risks and, you know, have that leader, like you wouldn't have called it leadership then per se, but like who really kind of stepped out in some way? So I think, um, I think there's a couple of people, obviously my parents 
were incredibly encouraging and always supported me and were willing, you know, like they donated to project graduation, graduation, right? Because they were like, okay, well, if she needs some money, let's, you know, we'll be, we'll be one of the first sponsors to try to show me that they supported me, which I've always so appreciated and, um, has really given me, I think, a foundation of knowing that I've got someone to, to support me in whatever it is I'm trying to, to tackle. And then I do think that I, I kind of always gravitated towards stories of people who had um, done crazy, seemingly crazy things and been successful doing them. And so I think that was kind of my inspiration. And with the support of my parents, knowing that I had someone to, to give me that little push when I needed it, um, maybe that was the right combination. So in your intro, I, I say things related to finance and money, sometimes really big dollar amounts. So clearly you, you went into that world, but at 12, did you have a sense you were going to be working with spreadsheets and ledgers and money? Or did you have some other idea of who you'd be in the world you know, as you grew up? So at 12, I think I probably still wanted to be a doctor. Um, I had this, I had this vision, like I was going to be a doctor and it was funny cause I went to summer camp and it was a, it was an actual experience where I got to go. It was Texas tech actually, which is in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, but you got to attend like college classes, a summer session. So it was a brief experience, but it was great. And they had this, this pre-med kind of class that they would let you take. And they, I remember distinctly, I was so convinced, oh, I'm going to rock this. I'm going to be like a surgeon, whatever. And they took us in and they showed us um, the one of the surgery training areas, which you actually have to do on cadavers, right? So they showed it to us. And as soon as they opened it up, I was like, oh God, no, never. I'm not doing this. Get me out. <laughs> so you, just, you like saved 10 years of your life though. I mean, like now I look back on it and I'm like, good choice, good choice. But in the moment I had a, I had a moment where I was like, oh God, well, what am I going to do? Right. Cause that had been everything I had thought of until that point. Yeah. So when you went off to, I, I'm assuming you went off to college. Did you have a, a major in mind? Did you have a clear sense of where you were headed? Uh, at that point I had gotten pretty interested in the finance world. Um, I have to say my dad is an accountant. So I lived through him being, uh, uh, public accounting and working in a large, um, a large oil and gas company. My mom also worked in accounting and in sort of finance. She worked in student loans, uh, for a company that owned a lot of different properties, including some, some colleges. And so I had been kind of steeped in the finance world. I, you, when you said, did you start working on spreadsheets at 12? I laughed. Cause I think I was probably 13 when I did my first spreadsheet <laughs> to help my folks. Yeah, no, I mean, wow. I, it makes so much sense though that you had that sort of like environment that you were growing up in. Um, I, my wife and I are so into like spreadsheets and like just being organized and list making that we think our kids are going to rebel. <laughs> I think it's, we never, we never want to use them. So it's 50, 50, right. I think I've, I've got none of my kids. I have three kids and none of them seem interested at all in finance. Now dad's an engineer, so it's a little different. We're not exactly the same, but yeah. So um, that, did you take the traditional route then and, and go looking for a job? I mean, it's, you, I named like, you know, Goldman and, uh, and Lehman. So, you know, you kind of, you kind of had a path. Once you were on that path, you had a pretty clear sense of where it was going. Yeah. So it's hilarious um, because I knew pretty clearly that I wanted to be in finance. I knew that I didn't want to do accounting. Love, I love my dad, but accounting was not my jam. Um, and 
I thought that investment banking, and, and again, you you may remember this, right? You were young in this in this period. This was the period of barbarians at the gate and all things beautiful and wonderful Wall Street, right? Like this was the the era of investment banking, the golden era. Uh, and so that was my plan. And I graduated from college shortly before Michael Milken went to jail. <laughs> so slightly challenging on the job front, um, which is why I chose to go and get my MBA right away because I basically couldn't find a job. Wow. Timing. I mean, that's happened to a lot of generations now recently, like of kids graduating into recessions or economic downturns or major crises like you were talking about, where like it upends an industry and you have to yet again sort of rewrite what your story is. But, you know, did you have an itch to be an entrepreneur all along or did that sort of come slowly? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I definitely at the beginning, I was like, I'm going to be in banking. Like my track was okay, look, I'm observing, I'm watching who the MDs, the managing directors are. Uh, at that point, there was only one in my group um, who was a woman. And so I watched kind of her path. And actually when I decided that banking was not for me is when I saw that after more than 20 years of service, she had finally decided to start a family. And uh, when she went away on maternity leave, all the other MDs started splitting up her client base and figuring out how they were going to, I don't want to say take advantage, but kind of how they were going to benefit from the fact that she wasn't going to be there for a couple of months. And I realized, okay, so these two things do not seem compatible to me. (laughs) I don't think that I'm going to live my life with no family. So feels like banking might not be the, the rest of my career. Wow. That's such a stark picture. And again, for you to experience it before it was you. Right. I got lucky for sure. Another example of you paying attention though, you know, others may not have, may not have seen or wanted to see the, that writing on the wall. And you were like, no, I'm going to take all of this in good and bad and make, make this difficult decision. And at the same time, were you starting to meet entrepreneurs? Like, I mean, for some people who are in that, like, you know, corporate environment, they don't know entrepreneurs. And so when they go out on their own, it's like, they are kind of an island because they're not yet networked in. Yep. Did you start to like, have a sense that you wanted to kind of pull those pieces together and like have a network who could support you as you, how long ago did you go into, um, into financeability? So I started financeability around like 2014. It didn't really exist as an entity, if you will, until 2015, about the same time I wrote the book. But, uh, Really what I did is I, I learned about entrepreneurship. I came out of banking and in the meantime had met the man who became my husband, who actually himself took a job at a startup. He came out of corporate and took a job at a startup. And that was my first experience with startups. And um, initially swore we would never work together, but ended up working together for about 10 years in that startup and realized that I think we, we like to joke in our house, like, we're unemployable. We don't think anyone in corporate would ever take us back because we've just been on our own too long and we're too used to being able to decide, okay, this is a risk I want to take and I'm I'm just going to do it. I totally get you with the hashtag unemployable. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, try, I try to explain it to someone who just was not getting it. I'm like, you just don't get it then. That's okay. But <laughs> I, I understand it. Um, I don't know if it's a good title for the show though. <laughs> I'd be like unemployable. Maybe not. Maybe not. (laughs) As long as we put something in front of it, perhaps. But yeah. 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 So 
that's cool that in a way you and your husband working together got a chance to kind of dive into this world of startups and entrepreneurship and really get your feet into that. I mean, 10 years is a, is a plenty of time for you to feel very comfortable. And, and then you were like, I got to do my own thing. Is this? Well, so we sold the company, which was, wow. which was great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, and it's, it's mostly uh, congratulations to the wonderful team that was part of that entire experience and the hard work that they all did to build that company into uh, an amazing opportunity for a, for a publicly traded company. Um, that was all actually happening in Switzerland as well. So in the same period, we sold the company, we had our third child and we moved back to the US. And so we just decided we weren't going to do anything for a while. And then ultimately what happened is my parents had bought a business and had decided because they had three grandchildren who were now close enough that they could come visit that they were thinking about selling the business. And it was really through that experience of helping them see that business, not as something they go and do every day, like a job, but as an investment for somebody else that I realized, wow, there's so many smart entrepreneurs out there who actually don't know how to do this. And this is something I can help them do. And that's what gets me excited is helping these folks see their business as an investment so that they can also, they can raise capital, they can sell whenever they want, but mainly so they can make good decisions about whether or not they want to keep investing in it, right? Because sometimes a business, you look at it and you're like, I just don't want to put my time, my energy, or my money into this thing anymore. Yeah, a lot of people are just kind of moving along and uh, until something disrupts their path, they just keep moving along. I imagine that last year, the 2020 pandemic, um, which disrupted everybody's plans, gave everyone a bit of a pause about, is this a thing I want to do? Can I still do this? How am I going to do it differently? What was the response amongst your you know, clientele and the people who were coming to you for advice last year? Did that lead to people wanting to understand your perspective around how do you approach entrepreneurship or were they more like, I, don't, I, want to, I just want to bury my head further in the sand and not think about it because it's too much? Well, I think it's interesting because obviously when you own your own business, it's very personal, right? And so a lot of the decisions you make in your business, I don't want to say they're emotional, but they're certainly very personal. They're not the kind of decisions, you know, you might make in a, in a big company where you don't feel impacted by, by what you're choosing. And early on, I was really surprised because the optimism that I saw was very heartening, right? So through kind of the first wave of PPP, through the first wave of closures, probably through the end of May, there was this kind of optimism. It's going to be okay. We're doing great. We just have to kind of hold our breath and wait until it's over. And I think towards the summer, which you may have seen in your business as well, um, a lot of people just like ran out of breath. They couldn't hold their breath anymore. And those who I, I observed, those who waited until the very end had a much harder time than those people who maybe towards the end of April were like, mm, you know what, even if this, even if this goes away quickly, I probably need to do something different. And now is the time. And so I saw a lot of people successfully pivot, but a lot of times it was the folks who, who again, kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, this is an opportunity to do something different with my business and jumped on that opportunity early. So I know that you and I know each other a little bit through Dory's recognized uh, expert community to Dory Clark, who I interviewed on the show and talk about her all the time. Um, and 
you know, I was known, the reason I was sought out, Dory, you know, I've known her over a decade and got to know her is because I was known for one particular thing. These people had a network and in particular had a network at conferences. And I spent over a decade building that expertise, writing a book, TEDx, hosting a podcast, right? All on that topic. And so March 9th is when I started to see the writing on the wall, that the things I was good at and people knew me for and the way I had shown up and add value wasn't going to be very useful in 2020. And March 11th is when I had the, okay, I need to find a new way to show up and add value crisis. And the next day I wrote nine ways to network in a pandemic and shared it. And the 13th, which was a Friday, I hosted my first virtual happy hour, which I then did every Friday since, including on Christmas, people come a year now into it. It's that helped me launch. I didn't, when I was starting that, it wasn't to build a business. It was just to show up and be like, here's the thing I can do. But it ended up launching a six figure business in eight months. That was all new revenue streams. And I agree Like if I had hesitated longer, I don't know. Like, I think part of it was just like catching that wave and just being like, well, everyone's disrupted. So like, whatever I try will be fine because we're all just testing things right now. Like, like how far can I fail? I I can't, like, I'm just, I'm not even trying to make money right now. I'm just trying to like show up, you know, and be present and people will remember that. But then I knew other people who waited throughout the summer for like, oh no, my event got moved from May, but we'll have it in October. And I was like, I, I don't, so I don't think exactly the way you had planned it's going to, and I agree that there's that hesitancy and those people had a hard time making those shifts. I don't know. Like, how do you, how do you think, what does that say about like entrepreneurs? Is it, is there sort of different kinds of entrepreneurs? Is it a skill set? Like, how do you build up that muscle to like respond? Cause it's not, it's not going to, we're going to have this happen again. I guess is my realization. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that was my wake up call was like, I don't know. Are we going to have 10 years and then it'll happen? Like when will the next major disruption happen? I don't know. But now I'm kind of like, I can do it because now I have the experience of having done it. But yeah, like what do you think leads some people being really successful at that and other people being like, oh, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. So I think it's interesting. Right. And and I don't it's like the nature nurture debate, right? Like when you think about kids. Um, so I don't certainly don't have any answers and I'm not an expert. I don't have the data on this at all. I do think some of it is personal tendencies, right? So there are people who are a lot more risk averse and then there are people who are just more willing to take risks. But I prefer, honestly, your explanation of it being a muscle that you can develop. So just like somebody, just like somebody who's never run a 5k can learn to run a 5k that that same muscle even if you're super risk averse i believe you can build your risk tolerance it doesn't mean you're doesn't mean you're going to skydive next week but you know you can build it up and i think that one of the things that i try to encourage people to do is exactly what you mentioned which is shift your mindset from i'm taking a big risk into i'm going to run an experiment and all i'm doing is getting data like, this is not, I can't lose here. There's no downside for me. All I'm doing is getting data. Once I get the data, then I can decide what I'm going to do about it. But all I'm going to do right now is run this experiment and really try to put yourself in the brain of a scientist and, and analytically look at the problem you're trying to test. What's so great is that, you know, when this show comes out, it'll be, you know, more, well, more than a year after that major disruption. 
and hopefully none others has happened between now and then. Fingers crossed. Um, fingers crossed. But I, I think it's always a good time to, to start doing those experiments. And I think that's, I think you're right that, you know, I, you need to sort of help me pull at a thread that I had mentioned, which is the idea of looking at muscle memory. Um, I've been testing and piloting and experimenting for years, for years. So it wasn't like a brand new idea and it does, it felt low risk to try those things out. So I think that that that's something that everyone listening can just think, well, what's the something I can just test and, you know, have a hypothesis like a scientist and exactly see what happens. Yeah. Well, and it and doesn't, ready. and it doesn't have to be big. I think this is the other thing, like people here kind of in the popular press, you know, major pivot and they hear all these things that sound super dramatic. The truth is nothing shifts on a dime, right? Nothing is going to radically change overnight. Um, even if you have a huge decrease in revenue, which I, I know somebody who did basically overnight, her, her principal source of revenue also disappeared because she was doing in-person work. Mm -hmm. Uh, she had had, like you, uh, an idea for rebranding, an idea for expanding her services for a while. And so she just kind of pulled pieces of it off the shelf and started testing it, right? But it wasn't like she went out to the world and had to announce that I have all the answers today, right now, and here's what I'm doing. She just started talking to people, having conversations. Hey, if we did this, would this be of interest to you? Would this be a way that you could work with us? And lo and behold, six months later, she's completely pivoted her business, but without it kind of being this huge dramatic, you know, I had all the answers at the beginning and somehow it was all magical. It's, it's funny. I just got a notice from um, my, where I register my URL that um, my no more bad zoom.com anniversary is coming up, <laughs> you know, like the, the auto renew payment thing. And I checked to make sure the auto it was on. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm not losing that. And it was April 15th. And so what you just said was really true for me that between March 13th and April 15th, I was just having fun with this. And, and at some point I realized people were coming to me, asking me questions and my entrepreneur coach like came on. And I, I know that I would have told a client when I was coaching them to pay attention to what people are, are asking you about and that it's not viable, it's not sustainable to meet with people one-on-one -on -one, like forever to answer their little questions. Like, yeah, I got to figure out how we scale that. And that's when I sort of said, you know what, this, this Friday thing that I've now done a handful of times. And by April 15th, I'd also probably done two or three, here's how you use Zoom trainings for like groups that I was part of. And I was like, I'm just going to commit and get a URL, which is such a funny thing because the URL is not actually an expensive commitment, no. but it did shift a mindset, right? Like it was like, a, it became a thing. For 10 bucks. Right. Well, <laughs> and it's, $10. it's kind of like, it's kind of like deciding that you're going to create a legal entity for your business, right? And move away from being a sole proprietor into, you know. I just did that. Right. Which is awesome. But, but you're right. I think it's a, it's almost more of a mindset shift yes. than it is an actual thing in the real world because it's not that complicated, right? Like you said. Yeah. It was just by URL. Yeah. I know. I just, it's such a funny thing. So what's changed for you? Like, have you had to change your offerings? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so like, like the other people we're talking about, I'd always been toying around with different things, right? Different ways that I could serve people. And, and like you, um, I love working with folks one-on-one, -on -one, but it doesn't allow me to impact as many people as I would like to. And so part of my kind of strategy going forward is how do I create more leveraged offerings? 
right? Whether that's group coaching programs, whether that's actual online courses to enable folks to learn on their own and then to come and work with me at the point in time when it really makes the most sense for them. Or if they choose not to, because I know there's a lot of DIY people out there who, who really want to figure it out for themselves. I want to equip them to do that. Right. And so that's where I'm at right now is how do I put some of those pieces in place to really assist all of the entrepreneurs that I want to help knowing that I can't help each of them one by one. You know, I'm going to bring up Dory Clark again. Some of my friends make a drinking game out of how often I bring up her name. So <laughs> we love Dory. I, that's a, that's Dory. an okay thing. Yeah. So um, she has this thing about having multiple revenue streams. And then her last book really focused on that entrepreneurial you. And I remember she came to a conference I was at and she spoke about her, I think 11, I think she has 11 revenue streams or at that point did, maybe now it's 33, who knows? She's a high achiever. Yes. But um, for years, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I started to really pivot even then into like, not just speaking. But before I like made it huge speaking, I was like, I gotta find a way to add coaching. And then when I started coaching, I have to find a way to add masterminds. Like I just had it in my head from her like mentorship. And I feel like a lot of the, a lot of entrepreneurs now have, my friends have multiple revenue streams that they didn't have in place a year ago. And it sounds like you're on that path too. And that's really exciting because I feel like that's actually part of what's going to make us feel better when the next disruption happens, because whatever it is, we'll, we'll be able to balance our business around the other things that we do. And like my friends who just did keynotes and were proud to just do keynotes. And we all looked at them in awe, like, wow, like it's amazing that you have a business. They had to completely <laughs> revamp yep. in, in a big way compared to people who were also doing trainings and also doing workshops and also writing. And, you know, so it's, um, I think in some ways we are setting ourselves up for the next thing just by having done the work. Well, I think you're right. And I, I think the other thing is it's just like any other portfolio. So I'm going to talk investment theory just a little bit, but, but essentially diversification actually helps you tolerate more risk, right? And, and to your exact point, if you only have one revenue stream and all of a sudden that's just not possible, you've got zero revenue. <laughs> Whereas if you have multiple revenue streams, a, any single one of them may not be as big, but if one of them stops working for whatever reason, or you choose not to do it, you still have a business that you can fall back on. And and again, I'm early in this process. And so part of what I'm discovering is that sometimes it's a mental, like it's a mental shift that you have to make moving from one-to-one -one work into group work. And I think if you can make that shift, I think you open up a lot of possibilities for yourself. And I would say this is the case, not just for people who provide services like you and I do, but I would say it's also the case for anyone who has any kind of business. Like if you sell products, well, you probably don't want to sell just one product, right? Because when people don't like that product, then you've got nothing else to offer. If you sell software, same kind of thing. You might offer different versions of your software or different industries that you serve. Because ultimately, to be successful, you have to keep growing your business. And quite often, that's not just selling the exact same thing to more of the same kind of people. Yeah, this is part of the um, going beyond the founder yep. like mindset to the business growth mindset. Like you get really excited about whatever initially drew you to having a business. 
and that's what you want to do for the rest of your life. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, maybe what Stephanie said makes sense. <laughs> I need to like find another way to grow. Well, and, and the other thing I would say, and I talked to a lot of founders about this, right, about their business, is if you're trying to build a business that is an actual asset, right? So something that you could sell to somebody else, which a lot of people don't think about this. They start their business. I'm, I'm going to do what I love. And it's like, well, that's awesome. But what happens when you don't want to do it anymore? Are you still going to make money? And so by building a business that has multiple revenue streams, you also can create a valuable asset out of your business without you having to provide services to continue to make money. Yeah. All right. So I got to switch us over to networking because a lot of what you're talking about is also about having the right people in your network, people who give you guidance, people who you can like see what they're doing and like learn from. So you have sort of your inner circle. And then I always think that, you know, our networks have sort of at least a second and third layer out. And I think of these are the kind of people you see once a year at a conference or you worked with five years ago, essentially the people you like, you know, you enjoy their company, but you don't have a reason to work with them today. So in some ways they could just fade, but how do you nurture and sustain those sort of loose connections? Do you have any habits, philosophies, or practices that help you sort of say, maybe not very, very top of mind, but people would be familiar with your name when you reached out or if they saw you online, they'd be like, oh, right, I know what she does. So was there, was there anything that kind of keeps you connected with those folks? Yeah, so I think that's a, I think that's a great question. It's not a deliberate strategy. It probably should be as I try to grow my business. I'm sure Dory would tell me you should be doing this more often. Um, but one of the things that I really like to do is I try to look at a lot of different bits of information. Right. So usually I start my day by looking at like hero, queer, hero queries. I look at some of the trade industries, like who's been funded, who's, who's creating new funds and things like that. And in looking at those headlines, a lot of times it'll spark something with somebody that I haven't spoken with in a while. And so I'll just take the email and I'll forward it and I'll say, hey, I read article number five and I thought of you. Or, hey, I saw this hero query and it might be useful for you. And not because I want them to do anything, but genuinely because like I was reading it and I thought of them and it took me five seconds to send it. And I've found that to be a great way to reconnect. Um, sometimes it's also like, Hey, I'm going to this event, right? This virtual event. And I think you might be interested or you, you told me you wanted to meet the speaker or whatever. I think finding something that would be of value to them is always a great strategy to reconnect. And I think it, it always helps me understand where they're at because sometimes then if they reply back and they're like, Oh yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. Then it's like, okay, well, let's get on the phone and tell me what you're doing. Yeah. That's really smart. It's so simple. It's like, it's like so obviously simple, but yet a lot of people just don't do it. Like, um, and you know, I, this is like the second or third time in like an hour that I feel like Harrow has brought up, come up for me and, um, it comes into my inbox and I'm not always, I like, I go in waves. Like when I pay attention, don't pay attention. But I like what you're saying because sometimes I don't pay attention because I'm not in the mood to be like pitching, cold pitching. Like it's just not, I'm doing other things for my business. I do that in spurts. And so, but I should always glance at it for what you just said, because it's the simplest thing. You know, I know people and they, they're writing about these things, just sharing it. But I had someone reach out to me and he didn't just reach out to me, but he said, here's the steps you should take. If you haven't already signed up, here's how you would sign up. You might miss this one but you'll be on the list for next time and answer within an hour. And here's how you should structure your reply. I mean, it was a very thoughtful like message. 
And I was like, it wouldn't be hard for me to have a little canned response that I just drop in the article that they should write, you know, the piece. But like then it's super valuable. Like it's like a hand holding people into do this thing and you might actually get this like media mention. And who doesn't want more media mentions? I mean, we all do. So I love this. Is this like, is this literally a daily practice? You just spend a few minutes just kind of, kind of skimming. Well, and I do it again. It's, it's not like, I don't want you to paint me as some sort of saint. Like I'm doing it for me too. Cause I need to look through, like, those are the things I kind of look at every day. Okay. What happened in the industry? What's going on in terms of media? And, and I mean, you know, sometimes it's a LinkedIn post, right? Like I'll be scrolling through LinkedIn and I'll see a thing and I'm like, Oh, I, you mentioned you liked this particular or whatever. And, and I'll send it off. Um, so, so yes, it's a daily practice, but you know, don't paint me as a saint. Like I'm always out there <laughs> trying to, you know what it is, people. you know what I think it is though. I think it's a mindset piece. Um, I, I know people who think about other people as they read something and then don't send it. Maybe So I've, I've, I've worked, I've coached people <laughs> who, who like somehow have some sort of reserveness. Like they, they feel like, they hold themselves back. I know okay. you, you, just see, you made such I mean, a face just I mean, now. I made a face. I'm like, why would you do that if you think you can help somebody? Because the story's in their head. Uh, and, and I think it's worth like mentioning that because while this seems super simple and easy to do, and you can do it sort of like as you live your life, that it is a decision that you're doing it. Like you, you're not just reading it for yourself. You're also reading it with a little bit of a what in here might be useful for someone else I know. And knowing that that might lead to a reason to hop on a call or a video chat to follow up with that person and as a catch-up call. Like, like to you, these are kind of all in, like it's not extra. It's just, they're all things that could happen when you open the email or look at your LinkedIn. You're not like, you're not separating them out. You're not like, I am now going to network. Right. Exactly. Well, and I think that's the key because I, I do think when you, when you have on your networking face, everybody sees it and then it doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think you're right though. It's interesting. You say that though, the mindset piece may be part of it. Um, but like, again, I always just think about it as like, this would be cool for this person. And I would be very happy for them if they got the opportunity to, you know, go on TV or be quoted in a journal or whatever it is. Um, and I think when it comes from that space of really genuinely wanting to help, why, why would, why would anyone be offended that you were trying to help them? Right. Right. I, this phrase again, from a year ago, how do I show up and add value Yep. in little ways and big ways. And I think there's been so many examples in my life in this past year, people have shown value to me, little ways and big ways, vice versa. Um, it's just a wonderful practice. Back when we could meet up in person, were you the kind of person who hosted gatherings? Was that part of who you are? So I didn't do a lot of hosting, but I did use them as ways to connect people that I knew. Right. So, so, and we kind of, I mentioned to this a little bit earlier, like if I was going to be at an event, I'd say to a group of people, Hey, you know what? I think so-and-so is going to be there. You said that you were trying to get connected with them. Why don't you come with me? and I'll make sure you get introduced. Right. So, yeah. so it wasn't so much that I was hosting them as I was trying to leverage them for the benefit of my network. And, and still doing that. It sounds like even the virtual space, you're still finding ways. to. Make oh yeah. Happen. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, again, that's the kind of thing as everything is moving online, sometimes it's actually easier, right? Because you don't have to chase them around like the cocktail party trying to find the person. You can just ping them on LinkedIn and put the two of them in a LinkedIn group and say, hey, I wanted to introduce you guys. Or you do an email intro, depending on your relationship. 
with a with yeah. the person. I love this. Um, so I actually I and now you have to come to it. I host a monthly gathering for people in Doris community. Oh, um, yes, I definitely have to come to it. Yeah. So so I will make sure you get the information. And that's been one of my ways to to sort of give value back to a community that I feel like I've gotten so much from over the years. But um, I met through Dory, uh, Michael Roderick, and Michael Roderick runs an online Facebook community that attracts a lot of what I would call like generous entrepreneurs. And I said to both of them, I'd love to host something regularly, but let me do it together. Like let's host something with both groups. And they both said, great. And so that has added even more value. So more, you know, they're really connecting across those lines. Oh, and nice. to me, it's just like such an, for, I don't know, I love hosting. So like having people show up and it happens that it shows off my talent as an MC and a facilitator, right? Like my knowledge around Zoom producing, which is the business part of what I'm doing these days. But what better way to demonstrate like a referral? Like people can actually say, I've experienced something Robbie did and then refer me. So um, that plus my weekly event have been two really wonderful things that I don't want to ever give up. Like I, even when we go back to in person, I, you know, there are just people I won't get a chance to see if I only do events in person. Well, and I think that's the other thing that that I've heard a lot of people lately talking about as we start to talk about return to work. Um, you know, here in here in Phoenix, we're a very big real estate uh, driven economy. Like everybody's asking what's going to happen with all the commercial, and you know, across the country, it's the same. Um, and I've heard a lot of people who are like, "There's been there's been so many new connections that opened up for me because I was willing to go outside my geographic location." That I don't think I would ever only network in person again. Yeah, I actually just recently wrote a, a weekly email that um, in 2011, my birthday in Boston, Massachusetts was named Robbie Samuels Day in the city of Boston. Wow. So I had gone deep into networking. In That's Boston. amazing. And to see what my, yeah, it was fun. And to see what my network has grown and how global it is today and how, like, it's, it's like you said, I've, I have been working on that for 10 years though. And I think for some people, they just sort of woke up to the fact that no matter what industry or business you're in, you could be doing some really amazing connecting online, virtual events, hosting things, gathering people, or even just doing more of what you're describing earlier, making really focused introductions and just not worrying about the geography and letting them figure out how to connect on Zoom. Like it's, it's now an assumption that two people who live anywhere in the world can find a time and can meet each other. It's like it's built in. Well, and I think, I think it's amazing too. I was, I was just thinking about it because the fact that in the past you might've been intimidated to walk up to somebody, like you saw them at an event and they had like 15 people around and like, Oh, Oh, well, I thought that I thought I could introduce myself, but maybe they're like super cool and more popular than I thought. And I can't talk to them now. And that barrier is not there online. So like I've found myself in conversations where I'm like, Oh, wow. You're like much bigger deal than I thought. And thank you for talking to me. <laughs> I love that. So we're, we're winding, we're winding this down. Uh, and I, my favorite to wrap up question is, um, I know we're going to stay connected and now you're going to be popping in for my, my monthly events with the Rex community. Um, if we were connecting a year from now and we're talking about how the last year has gone and we're, we're starting to talk about all of your great successes, what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think I would be most excited about being able to reach large groups of entrepreneurs 
whether that's as more of a speaker to educate them, whether that's through the leverage programs that I'm putting together, or that's through, I do a lot of mentoring and things like that. I, I think being able really to leverage my reach, which sounds really weird. I have, I have anxiety about saying leverage my reach, but that like being able to impact more people, because I do think that the more people who know how to run a fiscally sound business, a profitable, sustain, a profitable, sustainable business, it's great for everyone, right? Rising tide lifts all ships. And the more I can get that message out there and help those people do that, the, the better everyone's going to be. So I would be excited about that. Well, and I can't wait to celebrate that with you. That sounds amazing. How can people find you and follow your work? So you can find me at stephaniesims.com. That's Sims with one M, like Billy, not Phil, if you follow football. Uh, or they can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Stephanie J. Sims on LinkedIn. Fantastic. We have all those links at the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Stephanie, thank you so much for having this conversation. Well, thank you, Robbie. It was so great to finally get a chance to sit down and talk to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephanie. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 243. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode with Stephanie, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. Easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.